So this is the third and final sermon on church polity that I'm going to give. The first week we covered elder, elders, the second week we covered the office of deacons, and this week we're actually going to be speaking about and thinking through church structure. So the answer to our catechism question from today was that God created all things for his glory. And the proof text that for that answer that was given was found in Psalm 19.1 and then in Revelation 4.11. But they're not the only scriptures that tell us this truth. Listen to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. There God says, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And that Isaiah verse is specifically speaking and referencing the redeemed of God, you. And God, through the Apostle Paul, tells us why we are saved. He said, do you not know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And then he tells us how we bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do for the all for the glory of God. There, there is the foundational reason for our, sal our salvation to bring glory to God. And we bring glory to God through living our lives for him, in loving submission to him. And for this reason, we need to look at what God says about ecclesiology and church polity. Now, ecclesiology is the study of and thinking through the structure and the worship of the church. And polity, that speaks about church governance. And you're wondering... How is us being created for God's glory? How is that tied in with ecclesiology and church polity? How do they go together? Well, that's where that 1 Corinthians 10, 31 verse ties in. Since we are to do all things for the glory of God, the how and even where that we worship him must then matter. So does the word actually teach that the local church, that it is foundational in the life of a Christian? And if so, does how a local church, how it is governed itself, does that matter to God? I mean, should a church actually govern itself? And does God actually care about how this is done? Does he care about how he is worshipped? How are we to know? What are we supposed to use as our proof text concerning what we believe? Fortunately, we've been given scripture. And that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at scripture and what God has to say concerning the church and its governance and even worship to him. And then we're going to follow it wherever he leads us. And this is what is meant to be a Christian. You read the word of God for direction, and then you obey the word of God. The word of God, and I want you to hear this, saints, the word of God must be the single thing that binds your conscience concerning all things. 
God. Not your feelings, not your friends, not traditions, whether within the church or just cultural traditions. These things cannot bind your conscience. It must be God and God alone. But does it matter to God how and where you worship him? Or do we just have freedom? Well, allow me to bring Scripture to bear on this question. So follow the logic of Scripture with me. God, through another one of his apostles, tells us, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear, having a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. That verse, those verses are speaking about what is known as apologetics, giving a defense for the truth of our faith in God, which he has given to us by the grace of God, founded in the Son of God, which is revealed to us in the scripture of God, all for the glory of God. But we, we have narrowed down apologetics just to mean only the basics of the gospel and not the fullness of the hope that is in you. But since we are supposed to give glory to God in all that we do, we should be able to defend all that we do after coming to Christ. We should be able to give a defense for all that we do in our lives, the manner and the way that we organize our lives. And since we have been created and then recreated by God for his glory, and we are supposed to bring glory to him in all that we do, we should be able in fact, we must be able to give a good defense for all that we do. But if your defense is based upon your personal choice or your personal opinion, that's not going to be a very good, strong argument, not a good apologetics, not very persuasive, since everyone has personal preferences and morals. We should have something more tangible, more weighty, perhaps eternal to base our apologetics on. What should that be? It should be the command of God. What is the command of God? Well, I'm going to use two verses from 1 John to answer that. The first one is 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he gave a commandment to us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know this, or we know by this, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he gave us. So we're told the commandment is believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. And we do this by abiding in him as he abides in us. And we know that he abides in us because he has given us his spirit. And now that second First John verse, First John 2.27 and as for you, the anointing whom you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, as is and is true, and is not a lie, and just as he taught you, abide in him. So according to God here, you don't need anyone to teach you other than the anointing that abides in you. What is this anointing? 
because it's spoken of as a person here. And it abides in you, and it's not a lie. It's the anointing that teaches you. It's John 15, 7, same thing that is said there. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So what word is it that abides in you? John 1, 1. In the beginning was a word, the word was with God, and the word was God. This is the truth that is spoken over and again in the scripture, Christ in us. Romans 8.10, the treasure of him in earthen vessels as told to us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7, that Christ is formed in you, Galatians 4.19. Christ is the word, the word is Christ, and he abides in us. And it is his word that has been given to us. This is the reason that we need no man to teach us. That doesn't mean that we don't need teachers or elders to impart the truth of Scripture to us, we do. But that truth must be from the Word of God. It must be Scripture. It has to be Scripture that binds our hearts and consciences, and not a man, or man-made traditions, or religions. In other words, you, if you can't point to chapter and verse, either implicitly or explicitly, as to why you do something, you should rethink what you're doing. And when it comes to the church and the things of the church, what we do here must be found in Scripture. And this is why apologetics should apply to everything that we do in our life after coming to Christ, including and especially church governance. And we should all, saints, you should be convinced of why we do what we do here. And this is the point of giving a defense. When asked, why do you do what you do? The best defense is simply, thus saith the word. This is what my master has commanded. And in this you will know that in all things you are truly fulfilling your calling and bringing glory to God through your life. Again, we know that we are created and then recreated for his glory. These are explicit truths told to us. And we are to glorify God in our body, in all that we do. And that includes, again, what church that you're a member of. Is that a biblical truth? We need to be convinced that the church matters to God. Have you ever thought about that? Does the church actually matter to God? And if the church matters to God, then does where I worship matter to God? or And the manner in which I worship, does that matter to God? Because the church matters to God, not just the big C church, the eternal church, but also the local church as well. Listen to what God says to the, um, the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. He said to those church members there, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And you saints, you, every single one of you, are, the me- are a member of the body of Christ. And again, this is speaking of the big C church, the eternal, the unseen, and also the local body as well. Think about this. The letter that we know as 1 Corinthians was written to a local body that had church members within it. 
a local church that had some issues to deal with, issues that actually mattered to God, including the thinking that the individual members within that body, that they weren't accountable to each other. And the divisions within that body was permissible, was okay. And that the word of God was not the rule over the members individually and also the church as a body. And God said otherwise than that. And again, this is an explicit truth of Scripture. Now listen to an implicit truth that the local church and you belonging to it matters. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus there speaks of the visible local church. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Here Christ is speaking of the church, even before the church was formed, in a matter that makes implicit statements concerning the local church. He teaches implicit truths. The first is that the church has members. Otherwise, how are you to know who your brother is? The one that he's talking about here. Because Jesus intends that you do know who your brother is. Not just a brother in Christ in general, but also the brother that you are accountable to and with. And the implicit truth that that witness that you would take with you the second time that you go and speak to your brother, that witness, that person, he must have some spiritual weight to both you and the person you're going to talk to. Implicitly saying that you must belong to a local body. As does the implicit teaching that the church that you go and you tell that that brother is unwilling to repent, that church would matter to that man. They would actually care about him, and he should actually care about them. As is the implicit teaching that church discipline is always to happen within the context of a local, organized body of believers called the church. And for this reason, there must be church polity within it. And this is an implicit teaching of Scripture. And since implicit truths are just as binding and important as explicit ones, then church membership, the local church, is important to God. And so is ecclesiology and church polity. And we know through Scripture that the organism, this organism that we call, that he has called his church, that it has two offices within it, elders and deacons, and illustrated through both implicit teaching, Acts 6, 1 through 7, and explicit teaching, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8, and Titus 1. And we are told through, the, through these texts what the qualifications are for the men that hold these offices and even what they're responsible for. The elders for praying and teaching, Acts 6, 2 and 6, 4. And for the care for the souls, for those that are given to them, Hebrews 13, 17. And the deacons for serving the body, Acts 6, 3. But how many elders are the church supposed to have? 
And this is where we're going to be, begin to dive into this thing called church polity because the number and office of elder has historically been the central issue around which church polity is built. And again, polity is just a fancy word for governance. It's a root word for what we have as politics. And note, a church is not a business. It's not a government. But it must have polity since it is an organism created by God, just as the family has a God-ordained polity within it. We are told of the God-ordained polity within the family in Ephesians 5. Women's be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husbands in everything. Verses 22 through 24. So as a Christian, we must submit to the polity within the family structure, and the same thing goes within the church as well. But does God care? And if he does, then his word should tell us that he does care, and even what he requires. But within Christianity, there are generally four models of church polity. The first is what is called the Episcopalian model. The second is the Presbyterian model. The third is the, con the Congregational model. And then the fourth is the Moses model. Again, does this even matter? Does where you worship and even the means and the method of that worship, does it actually matter to God? Well, the answer, according to the word of God, is a resounding yes. Because the New Testament is clear that every church is to be led by a plurality of elders. This is the explicit teaching of the Bible. There is no example in the New Testament of a one, eld or one elder or pastor leading a congregation as the sole or primary leader. There was a plurality of elders in the church of Jerusalem. It's called to us in Acts 11.30. Antioch and Pisidia and Lystra and Iconium and Derbe, Acts 14, 23, in Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 17, in Philippi, in Philippians 1, 1, the cities within Crete, Titus 1, 5, the churches of the dispersion to which James wrote, James 5, 14, the Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 1 Peter 5, 1. God, in his infinite wisdom, gave the church a plurality of elders for at least three reasons. One, accountability. The second, to share the load of, of leading the church. And third, the edification of the body. You see, all elders are merely members of the body that they belong to, and they're just men. And all members of the body of Christ need the body around them. And we all need brothers and sisters to be accountable to. Someone who is specifically praying for you. Someone who knows you well. Knows the things that you're struggling with. Knows you well enough to hold you accountable. And will be able to spur you on to righteousness. Elders need these kind of men around them. But so do you. And if you're a woman, you need godly women around you like this? Do you have someone like this in your life? Not necessarily your spouse, 
although they do a pretty good job. But someone that you know is solid, loves the Lord enough to be honest with you about yourself, about you, perhaps even brutally honest at times. Second reason, leading and shepherding well only happens when the load of shepherding is shared among men. One man cannot do it all. Can't. Having a plurality of elders will allow the personalities within a body to find good fits with each other too. Ears with ears and eyes with eyes. And allow the body to be a complete body. Which then brings to the third point. For the edification and building up of the body. The gifting of the body on his children happens that he gives specific gifts to differing people. Which is why not elders are gifted preachers. We're not cookie cutter people. And not all elders or gifted teachers either. They all must be able to teach, yes, but within the plurality of elders, there will be some that will be gifted at teaching and teaching well, and others will be gifted at preaching. God gives gifts to his children, and these gifts, just like with the elders, are all for the edification and the building up of the body. And it's without doubt that the plurality of elders, it rounds out, it brings color and texture and vibrancy to the church body that can't happen with a single elder. Because we all have our little lanes that we walk in and live in. We need those other people alongside of us to round things out. And I personally understand, I need Clayton and I need Kevin and I would never try to do this without the covering of other elders. I would never try to be an elder alone. Are you wondering what happened before we had a plurality of elders? Well, this is why people don't plant churches, why churches plant churches. Because that sending church and the elders of that sending church, in my case, it was the church at Meridian, and the elders there, they were my covering for me when we planted this church. Up until the time that the Lord brought up in within that body as elders. And in fact, I and the other elders, we still on occasion consult with the elders there at Meridian. We don't think that we've got it all figured out. The Bible is that the plurality of elders is the means and the method that a church is to be led. But by the beginning of the second century, the church was no longer being led by a plurality of elders found in self-autonomous churches. It was beginning to be led by a bishop. And this has grown and has morphed into what, has been, what is now called the Episcopalian model of church polity. The Episcopal Church the Greek Orthodox, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, and the Anglican Church all have this type of polity. This type of church governance is also favored, the favored one that the cults and the non-Christian Christian religions like, such as the Roman Catholics and the Mormons. The Episcopalian form of church polity basically has a single man who's over all the congregation. Just think of the Pope and how that all works out. 
And in that form of church polity, the mother church owns all the properties that the congregation meets in. That's why when we purchased this building, we bought it not from the local congregation, but we bought it from the Methodist Church of the United States of America. This model is very top-down in its leadership with, some, with one man leading them. Some of them actually tell their churches what they're going to preach every Sunday, what songs they're going to sing every Sunday, and even what verses will be read every Sunday. And the pastor who's in charge of those local bodies, they're not selected from within that body, and they're not usually even supported by that local body either. And they are more often than not transferred in and out whenever they're told to go. And this, this type of church polity, and again, going back to that defense that I was talking about, this type of church polity, they can't point to chapter and verse for support of its form of polity. It, they lean heavily on indirect biblical and historical thinking for its support. They say that it just seems that Peter and James were, they were put in the position of bishops and that they were kind of over these newly planted churches within, within their respective regions. That's it. There is no direct implicit or explicit teaching to support it. The second type of church polity is the Presbyterian form. And that word Presbyterian is from the Greek word that is usually translated as elder in the Bible. In this form of church polity, the authority over the local church that rests on a body of elders within each local church. But then they then answer to a higher board of elders called a session, which is made up of selected elders that are supposed to represent all the churches. In this model, the local body doesn't select the elders. That's done through the session or the assembly of elders. And that man who is to be selected has to be a seminarian. He has to have a degree from a seminary, and he has to undergo a verbal theological theological examination prior to being made an elder. And since the local body doesn't install these men or affirm them, they can't remove them either. If you have an issue with an elder within that kind of a of church polity, you have to take it to the General Assembly, and they are your final court of appeals on any matter within their local pastor. There's only one type of church that holds to this kind of polity, they're known as Presbyterians. I know, not very original. But they generally, as Presbyterians, they hold to the regular principle of worship, meaning that if it's not seen in Scripture, that they shouldn't do it. It shouldn't happen in worship. And this is the, this was the form of church polity that came out of the Reformation, the first form anyway. They hold that their system of leadership can be found in the workings of the first century church as told to them or told to us in the book of Acts. They point to Paul and Barnabas coming back to the elders and rulers in Jerusalem in Acts 15 as a defense of their form of church polity. We're going to be looking at Acts 15 in a minute to talk about that. And then there are those churches that hold to what they commonly call a Moses model of church polity. And this model is the church that usually has a verb as its name, if you want to kind of know what you're looking at. You know those churches like Thrive, or Alive, or Relevant, or Engage? Um, they are normally those kind of churches. 
They usually don't have church membership. They don't hold to a church covenant. They don't usually have doctrinal statements. And the Moses model is single elder ruled. He sees himself in the place of Moses. As far as he's concerned, he heard from God. He had a calling placed on him. He's been told, remove your sandals because there's a burning bush there and you're being consummation and commissioned by God to go out and be my mouthpiece. And he makes the rules. He sets the standards and he is the church planter. And there is no oversight or covering over this man. This is a very dangerous model. Not only for the man, but also for the, those that are part of that congregation. And as you probably could guess from the name of this form of church polity, they pull from the book of Exodus and that man, Moses. These churches may have a plurality of elders underneath that man, but those elders are underneath that man, meaning that he has final say, and they are accountable to him, not the other way around. And then the final type of church polity is what is known as the congregational form. The congregational form is the least organized of the three types that I spoke about. Actually, the four types. Therefore, it can come in many varying types. There's the congregational-led church that holds that since we are a kingdom of priests, that the congregation is in charge of all matters, with the pastor being an employee of the church, being overseen by a council of elders served by deacons. The Quakers have this form of church polity, as do the Church of Christ. And then there's the congregational model that is congregationally ruled, elder-led, and deacon-served. And this is the model that most Baptist churches hold to, and the one that Scripture supports in being the closest to the implicit and the explicit instructions of church polity. And the reason for this is that it has in place a plurality of elders who are charged with the spiritual care and oversight of the body, as told to us in Hebrews 13, 17. Elders lead. But where do we get this thing about deacons serving? That Acts 3 or 6-3 verse. And even the very meaning of the term deacon, which is servant. They are the ones that serves the slaves of God. But what about the congregationally ruled part? Where do we see that at? Well, the first point, the first place I want to point out is Matthew 18, 17, where Jesus said, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Christ said, tell it to the church, not the elders, not an elder board, and not a bishop. It's the church. And then we have 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. In the name where Paul tells, tells the church in Corinth, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such as one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And here is a clear, implicit demonstration of the polity that the, of, of the church as God deems it. The Lord Jesus Christ is head over the church. The congregation is gathered. 
And by the way, this is why it's important to gather together. And this includes the elders and the deacons. That's the congregation. And it's this body, the congregation, who delivers this one over. And we know this because in 2 Corinthians 2.6, Paul tells him, sufficient for, for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the major, majority or the congregation. And then there's Acts 15.22. That one that the Presbyterians say is, is proof of them being right in how they have their church polity. Acts 15.22 reads, Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And here the apostles, along with the elders and the whole church, they act as one, not a general assembly of elders such as the Presbyterians say that it was. It's clear that the church was gathered and it was actively involved in affirming these men. And we have Acts 6, where the, the issue of the church body was made manifest to the apostles. The issue of the widows of the Hellenist church members, they're not receiving the same equal care of the Hebrew ones. And the apostles, after receiving the news of this issue, they approach the body and they tell them, select within yourself seven men. And this is how we as a body select deacons as well. Elders are made aware of a need such as the need of a deacon of evangelism. And once we're made aware of that need, we then bring it to you, the body, with the same instructions that the apostles gave that body. You, select within yourselves qualified men, or man in this instance, and then bring them, or him, to us. And finally, Let's look at that letter that the Presbyterians say is evidence for their form of church polity. Acts 15, verses 22 through 29. This is what they hanged their church polity on. It says, Then it seemed good to the elders and apostles, I'm sorry, the elders, I'm good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church to choose men from among them, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent this letter by them. Here's the letter that they sent. The apostles and the brothers who were elders to the brothers in Antioch and Syria and Cilia, who were from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of us, to whom we gave no instructions, have gone out and disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, and they themselves report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than those essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality, which, if you keep yourselves You'll do well. Farewell. There's no top-down dogmatic rule coming from the apostles to the elders in Jerusalem. They're just making a suggestion. And you have to ask yourself, why would then <clears throat> the church, if they were not in charge, why would the church in Jerusalem be consulted if it wasn't because 
these outlying churches were not under their right? Think about this. Because if we're being honest with each other, which one of us would have not gone to the men who actually walked with and were taught by Jesus personally? I would. Like I said, we still go and consult with the elders from Meridian. These local bodies were self-governing. They were what we would call autonomous, individual local bodies. And this is the Southern Baptist Convention model. And no, the SBC is not a denomination. It's a gathering of like-minded churches that have all come together under what we know as the Baptist faith and message for the sole purpose of sending out missionaries and planting schools such as OBU and the seminaries of the SBC. So these are the primary models for church polity. A pope, a presbytery, self-autonomous elder and Moses-led, and then elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally-ruled model. Which is exactly what this church has as its ecclesiology and polity. And the reason we do is because we want to be able to give a good apologetics for why we do what we do. This is why we have chosen to have this form and function within our church. Because we hold that we can clearly point to Scripture as our guiding principle for our church polity and even our ecclesiology. We can answer when asked, why is your church like this? We can answer, thus saith the Lord, because our master has commanded it this way, and this is why we do it. And finally, now we can look at how the church is to act when we come together to worship God. You ever think about whether or not he cares about what we do when we come together to worship God? Does God actually care what we do when we come together, gathered together as the body, how we worship him? I don't know. Ask Cain. Or ask Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire in the worship of God as told to us in Leviticus 10. Or how about God's rejection of Saul's non-prescribed worship when God said to obey is better than sacrifice in 1 Samuel 15.22? How about Jesus' rejection of the pharisaical worship according to the traditions of elders as given to us in Matthew 15.11? All of these things indicate a rejection of worship offered according to the values and the directions other than those that are specified in Scripture. And this is why we hold to the reform principle known as the regular principle of worship, which states that God alone determines the content, motivation, and even the aim of worship. And the regular principle is based upon the implicit and explicit teaching of the Word of God. Because if you think through the why and the why not, of the worship under the regular principle, you always are going to be led back to Scripture. 
And we believe that as long as you hold to the five solas of the Reformation with sola scriptura as the guiding principle for the how and the why of God, you will understand that God has been very specific in the how of his worship since the very beginning of time. And in fact, listen to how this is understood coming out of the London Baptist Confession of 1689. This is what the LBC said in in 1689 concerning the worship of God. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or under, under any way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. That's in chapter 22, verse 1 of the London Baptist Confession. And this truth, that truth is encapsulated in what Christ said in John chapter 4 concerning the birth of his church. When he said, an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He teaches us how we are to think him, even how we are to approach him. And the further we get away from his commands, the less we are actually worshiping him. Do this mental picture thing in your head. Think about what happens in most places on a Sunday morning or even a Saturday evening. Think think about what's allowed to adorn that sanctuary stage that's there, that place where the body of, of Christ is supposed to be gathered here, the body of Christ here in this realm, gathered for the sole purpose of glorifying God. Think about that sanctuary. You got that picture in your head? Do you see the American flag and the Christian flag standing in the corners? The Happy Mother Day banner hanging down, the Christmas tree on the stage, that little house where the anniversary and birthday gifts are given. And then think about all those things that happen in those places during what is called worship. The meet and greet time, the offering plate being passed around, the jokes being told, the entertainment and the strange fire that is offered. Now in comparison, think about the sacraments, the rules and the regulations given for the worship of God, given for the tabernacle and even for the temple. How would these things that happen in in our context, in our day, how would they stack up alongside of the worship of God as given to us in the Old Testament? But you're thinking, but that was the Old Covenant. That was for the worship of God by the nation Israel. It was strictly laid out and strictly adhered to. But why do we think now because we're no longer under the Old Testament. Why do we now think that God no longer has the say of how he is going to be worshipped? Why do we now think that it's okay to do whatever makes us feel good? 
And if you think about it, that is so much of what happens on Sunday mornings. It's not based off of anything that what actually entertains people and makes them feel good. Think about that incident that is told to us in 2 Samuel 6 when David is bringing the ark of God on a cart, not carrying it as it was prescribed. Instead of actually doing what God said, ask Uzzah or Uzzah, however you want to say his name, ask him if God cares about how he's worshipped. It matters to God how we worship him. Matter of fact, that letter that it sent to the Corinthians, that's a clear indication of this truth. God, through Paul, sent that letter to the church in Corinth where he lambasts them for the how of their ungodly worship. Everything from allowing blatant and flagrant sin to be openly accepted within the church to taking communion improperly and even the form and the flow of their church gatherings. All that is talking about there. And even that letter to the Colossian church, it's all about right worship and scriptural adherence within worship. And we are told by Christ that we must worship in spirit and truth. And it seems almost silly that it has to be stated, that it has to be his spirit and his truth. And much of what happens on Sundays that is called spirit-led, and it is spirit-led, the clucking like chickens, the babbling, the barking like dogs, the rolling on the floors, all that stuff is spirit-led. But it's not the Holy Spirit that's leading it. Since none of those things are the prescribed manner that the Bible has given to us in the proper worship of him. The regulative principle of worship and the churches that hold to it, they're not going to be fancy. And they may not even be exciting, at least not for the goats. But for the sheep, they will feel like home because that church endeavors to form and then to conform itself into the image of God as, it, as stated in Scripture. And what is the result when you hold to Scripture alone as a standard for worship? Well, particular elements of worship are then highlighted, like reading the Bible as told to us in 1 Timothy 4.13, preaching the Bible as told to us in 2 Timothy 4.2, singing the Bible, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. And that includes psalms as well as scriptural songs or spiritual songs that reflect the development of the redemptive history and the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the praying of the Bible, because Christ said, my father's house will be a house of prayer, Matthew 21, 13. And then the seeing of the Bible and the gospel in the two sacraments within the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. No, saints, God is to be glorified in our lives. And he is the one, if you think about this, he is the one who determines how we are saved. He is the one who determines how he is actually glorified in our lives. And he is the one who has made you, made me, members of his church. He has to be the one that directs how churches are governed and formed. And he has to be the one that commands and regulates 
what happens when his body comes together to worship him. And for this reason, so that we can give a good apologetics, for this reason, may we hold strictly to the Bible. May we be known as people of the word. And may we be confident in our scriptural defense, in our apologetics of the ecclesiology and the polity of this church and why we worship the way that we do in this church. Because it should matter. These are things that should matter in becoming a member of a church. If you're not a member here, you should actually think about these things when becoming or choosing a church. Because your church, that church reflects you and your values and what you think about God. And you, you, once you become a member, you reflect that church. And because we are the church, the body of Christ, and members individually here, we should esteem the church all for the glory of God. Let's pray.